Healthcare podcast breaking the rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl, the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a best selling author and currently professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Eric Topol. He is the director of the Scripps Research Institute and professor of molecular medicine. He has published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles and serves as the editor-in-chief of Medscape. He has authored three bestsellers, including most recently, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Welcome, Eric, to Fixing Healthcare. Thank you. Great to be with you again. This is our eighth season of Fixing Healthcare. It focuses on leadership the vital force that leads to innovation and improvement. And you've been a powerful leader across your illustrative and esteemed career in a range of contexts and environments. Today, I hope to dive deeper into each and learn from your experience and insights. But first, let me ask you, Eric, do you have an overall definition of leadership and what parts do you see as universal versus context specific? Well, thanks, Robbie. I guess the first thing I'd say about leadership is um, as an inspirational force that you try to get others to uh, take it to the next level of what, what, what they can do to be, as far as we're concerned, you know, part of a medical community that's not just taking care of patients, but also doing research to try to improve our approaches, whether it's prevention or whether it's treatment or just understanding uh, medical conditions. So to me, that's the biggest thing, provide an inspirational force for others. And uh, that's what I've aspired to do for, for decades. Well, as listeners will hear, you've done an amazing job. I'm going to sort of, sort of track the way through your career and all the different leadership roles you've played and try to pull out of each an understanding few nuggets of insight that they can take and learn from. Uh, you founded a medical school when you were back at the Cleveland Clinic. Can you talk a little bit about education? How should we be educating this next generation of medical students and residents? Well, you know, you're bringing up one of the things I'm most proud of uh, throughout my career, which was taking on the challenge of a new medical school there had not been one in over 20 years when in Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, was there was some reluctance to do this, uh, in part because there was no uh, recognized undergraduate or graduate of, uh, education program um, by the state of Ohio. So it required working with uh, Case Western, the university, you know, just down the street, uh, to work together to form a new medical school, which ultimately was named Cleveland Cl Clinic Learner College of Medicine. And uh, that was a challenge just because there had not been a new medical school. And so working with the LCME uh, to get the plans to develop a new medical school was a challenge, but it was all worth it because um, basically it was a, a 
a uh, small medical school, which ultimately has become tuition free, has brought in, you know, just phenomenal uh, students and now physicians from all over the country. But that commitment of um, now there's been many new medical schools since 2004 when that one was founded. Uh, we have now over 150. But the question, of course, is can we do better in medical education? And I do think there's still tremendous room for improvement. So it doesn't keep up with the times. I mean, for example, this is a time when AI and uh, genomics, uh, genome editing, things like really exciting uh, jumps in medicine, they're not part of the curriculum. Um, we aren't really training the medical um, scientists, the, the uh, physician researchers that we'd like to. Um, so there's lots of rooms that we can do to improve medical education. But I do think, again, going back to that inspiration theme, if we can find young people with uh, the talent to uh, pursue uh, in a medical career, um, that's how we pass the baton over to the younger generation. And hopefully they can, you know, keep this, perpetuate this. Uh, we're, we're so lucky uh, to be in a career that is just so extraordinary and diverse and the privilege of, uh, of helping patients, caring for patients. Let's dive a little deeper, Eric. You know, I, in the season on breaking the rules, uh, we talked a little bit about the idea that uh, medical students are prohibited from bringing cell phones into an exam, but that's how they're going to practice. Why are they memorizing the Krebs cycle <laughs> where they can look it up in half a second on their phone? They need to have to you know how to apply it and use it. And I'm particularly uh, interested right now in ChatGTP, where I think it will totally revolutionize healthcare, not next year or the year after, but assuming that Moore's Law holds and it doubles every two years, you know, by 10 years from now, and a first year medical student isn't going to finish training for a decade, it's going to be 30 times more powerful. And it thinks like human brains, it predicts what's going to come next. And I can see it training and helping patients to get the preventive services they need. I can see it doing patient safety in the hospital. I can see it being an adjunct to doctors so that we can get every physician to practice as well as the best. How are we going to build a mindset around modern technology into the people designing curriculi for both medical students and residents? Well, you're bringing up uh, the hot topic of today, of course. Uh, everywhere you look, people are talking about chat GPT. But uh, just one point, um, whereas Moore's Law was a doubling uh, of chip capacity uh, every 18 to 24 months, the large language models are doubling their performance uh, that is the number of parameters that they can handle now exceeding a trillion and the number of flops that's going up every six months doubling. So it's taken Moore's law into, you know, a higher order of acceleration. So you're absolutely right that what we have today is still relatively rudimentary. It's still mistake laden and still, you know, it's, it's based on this idea of large uh, language understanding, which obviously machines don't truly understand language. Uh, they contextualize it uh, when they're 
trained. But the point you're getting at is a much more far-reaching one, and that is, um, and I, you know, I wrote about it in Deep Medicine. The types of physicians in the future we're looking for are not brainiacs or people who are good at memorizing things like the Krebs cycle or the coagulation cascade or all these other things that we were trained to have to memorize. Uh, in fact, we want people who have the human, the humanistic uh, side that's um, embedded, that is, that their ability to care uh, for patients to engender their trust, their, their presence, their ability to communicate and empathize. Those are the qualities. And, you know, the idea that machines are going to help lean on machines, clinicians, physicians, uh, we're going to see a lot more of that. So, yeah, your question about isn't it unrealistic that you can't have a booster function from uh, a machine, it's kind of silly because that is the way more and more over extended years how medicine will be practiced someone told me eric that you said recently that you were not able to discern machines versus the humans but you were confident that a human plus a machine would beat all other humans and if that's true we're training the current next generation of doctors to be not as good as the ones who will be able to use this technology effectively how do we shift the mindset of the deans and the department chairman and the lecturers and all the other people that you knew so well when you started the medical school? Yeah, well, it's, you know, frankly, pretty embarrassing because if you go across 150 medical schools, uh, let me know if you find one currently that has AI as a core curriculum. Uh, I don't know of any. And obviously AI is it's catapulting forward with, you know, multimodal AI and no longer than as much relying on self uh, on supervised learning, but rather self-supervised learning. And that's what set up this whole large language model or foundation model era that we're just starting to get into really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a problem. It's like a blind spot and it, changing a curriculum in our medical schools is like changing the direction of a battleship. And it takes, years and has faculty senate you know approvals and i mean it's just there's just no reason for this At any rate um we hopefully will get that type of uh nurturing the education that we need so that all physicians feel facile they don't have to be able to code they don't have to be uh you know actually so uh expert in AI tools, but rather they just should understand it. You know, where are the limitations and the nuances? So it can be incorporated into their daily practice. And frankly, a lot of uh, the public, a lot of uh, patients um, will get well-versed in this uh, through autodidactic, you know, self-learning. And it's important that physicians uh, stay ahead as well. Eric, in my opinion, frustration with the American healthcare system has never been higher. You know, it's kind of crazy to me how at the beginning of COVID, healthcare workers were looked at as heroes, and now we mostly hear frustration from the American people, frustration with vaccines not being effective in preventing the spread or working as long as people had hoped, 
Um, now drug companies wanting to dramatically increase the cost, uh, confusing messaging around COVID, frustration around in increasing out-of-pocket costs, frustration with insurance, premiums, et cetera. You know, some of the good things that started from COVID have stayed, like the wide, uh, widespread adaptation of telehealth. Do you see the future of AI impacting healthcare in a way that improves convenience and drive down uh, and drives down costs in a way that that helps to restore the average consumer's faith in the American healthcare system? And if so, how? No, I do, uh, Jeremy. I mean, I think that that was really the premise of the Deep Medicine book, which was we can empower patients. I mean, they, so many patients want more charge. They can capture their own data now through various means and have algorithmic support to interpret that. So most of the common diagnoses from skin lesions and cancers to ear infections in children to urinary tract infections to even heart arrhythmias and the long, long list is going to be increasingly um, up to patients to be able to do screening before they even have contact with a physician. Um, so there's that, there's the ability, particularly now with these large language models to process all of a person's data in their charts that would save immense amount of time and be more comprehensive and potentially uh, as or more accurate than all the time it takes for a physician to review a patient's multiple sources of medical records not even just in the one health system that person is being seen in. So that, along with the fact that you're going to have leaning on machines for interpretation of images and uh, synthetic notes, so you won't have to type at a keyboard, liberation of keyboard. There's so many ways that we'll get the gift of time here. And hopefully that gift of time will lead to um, dedication to restore the patient-physician relationship, the trust. and um, we should work on that. That's the overarching goal of AI is to get there. So let's move on. Very early in your career, it's hard to imagine how much you accomplished when you were in the first, I'll say, quarter. Uh, you became the chairman of cardiovascular medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, a highly respected position. What did you learn in that role about motivating clinicians and leading them to embrace new opportunities to improve performance? Well, I mean, I, in 1991, when I went there, um, Cleveland Clinic's, at least cardiology, was not that strong. Uh, it was very good in caring for patients, uh, always has been really. But in terms of leading academic pursuits and creativity, making seminal contributions, that wasn't really what it was known for. So um, I wanted to change it. Of course, what I learned was you can't change it that fast. You know, you have to, you have to be patient. You know, I was obviously, you know, I was very young then really 36 years old. And I'm trying to, I think I was the youngest person in the department uh, in terms of the attending staff. So you know, I I had to be more patient. I learned that, but ultimately, we were able to recruit a whole new team of leadership in, in each of the areas of cardiovascular medicine, whether it would be imaging or heart failure or electrophysiology or prevention. I mean, you go down the whole list, and that set the tone that each of those leaders of divisions of this big department, you know, would would inspire young people, whether it be fellows and residents or junior faculty to contribute. And um, 
this is how we built the place. And I think um, it became over those 14 years uh, before I left, you know, a very strong force in American and, and global cardiovascular medicine. Do you have new ideas about how you can accelerate that process of driving <laughs> improved performance these days? <laughs> well, that's a good one because, uh, you know, I, I, one of my real foibles is being impatient. And, um, you know, I've had to learn all, over the years. It took me a while to realize that change doesn't go over well. You know, particularly in the medical community, we're, we're tend to be, you know, pretty relatively sclerotic. We don't really want to change. So we have to just, you know, be, you have to compromise there in something that you think could be done in months. It may take a couple few years. And that's one of the big lessons I've learned is that, you know, when I came to San Diego in um, 06, it was uh, starting from scratch, a new institute. And, you know, I'd be very deliberate and much more uh, willing to take the time than I might have, you know, when I went to Cleveland back in the early 90s. Let's go there in a second, but let me ask you before then that you've argued for physicians to join together and demand improvements in the current healthcare system, and yet haven't seen a whole lot of progress. What do you think stands in the way and what can leaders do to, again, accelerate that change? Yeah, this is a great point you're making. Um, Basically, we as physicians have become, uh, have been uh, passive, uh, very few real activists in our community, and uh, become subverted by um, our overlords, administrators. And as you well know, that's where the vast expansion of the healthcare workforce is not the care workforce looking after patients, but rather you know, administrative creep and managers. And basically they're running the show and it's a business. And uh, unless we stand up for patients and our career and what it all, why we went into medicine in the first place, become activists, uh, we are basically going to continue seeing erosion of medicine. That is the ability. Why did we go into this in the first place, which was to care for patients and that has been um, eroded uh, has eroded because of the lack of time the business of medicine overriding you know the becoming data clerks and all these you know really inadequate inappropriate uh, things that have happened to to us we let it happen to us we didn't revolt and now in the era of AI, when efficiency and streamlining um, will come into play, it's all the more reason that we stand together because uh, otherwise we're just going to be asked to, to do more in less unit time and things can even potentially get worse than they are now, which is a little bit hard to envision. So that's why, you know, a few years ago, I wrote in the New Yorker a piece about um, why we, we've got to... Um, as you say, uh, Robbie, get work together uh, to come up with a way to take back our profession, which uh, over the steadily and especially in the last couple few decades has uh, really taken a hit. You know, as you know, I teach both in the medical school and the business school at Stanford. So I follow things pretty closely in the business world. 
And when I look at what the big retail giants, and by that I mean Amazon and CVS and Walmart are doing, I watch them acquiring all the pieces of medicine. They have pharmacies, they have they employ tens of thousands of physicians, they have um, the ability to offer an insurance product, they have retail clinics, they have doctors at home. I can go down the whole list and they're all filling in all these pieces. I think you're absolutely right. If Unless physicians step forward now, by a decade from now, they'll all be employees, I believe, of one of these retail giants. And I don't know whether you're better or worse for patients, but I definitely believe that doctors will regret not having acted at this particular point. Not just doctors, but doctors and all clinicians, but you and I are both physicians, so we're speaking to that audience. Do you have thoughts about those retail clinics? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, when you say retail clinics. I mean, you're an expert in this area. You're talking about lots of different variations. I mean, you can have one medical acquired by Amazon, uh, and then you can have, you know, minute clinics and drugstores. And that, I mean, it's a big range, right? But in general, whether it's retail from industry or whether it's health systems that are getting, you know, progressively more influential and uh, uh, in any given region, more representing either monopolies or oligopolies, duopolies of whatever, any given city or region. So basically, we've all watched this. We have just, as physicians, let it happen. Again, going back to our education and what are the norms, we are taught to keep our head down and not to be activists, essentially. And we have... We have no organization that truly represents us. You know, the largest is the AMA. They they have no uh, role in what we're talking about here. They do nothing about that. And so there isn't any organization. Most of the ones that are professional organizations are, are basically trade guilds that are trying to support reimbursement for their constituents rather than standing up for patients. So we don't have a way to do this uh, and, this is really unfortunate. Um, but I, I hope, again, you know, I'm trying to be patient because there's been, as you say, nothing's progressed. Um, we are seeing more strikes and the uh, idea of unionization, which I don't think is necessarily the, the structure we need to do this. But there is more unrest than we've seen in many years uh, in medicine, not just, of course, physicians, but also nurses and not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well. So that may be the beginning of, you know, where this is headed. As a digital healthcare expert, do you see wearables, AI, and other digital healthcare tools ever like working in a fully synchronized way with primary care, other providers and patients that truly focuses on preventative health and helping patients stay healthy, eat right, manage chronic diseases, and ultimately stay out of the hospital? Uh, roadblocks are currently in the way and what will it take to remove those roadblocks? Well, that's what I wrote about as the virtual medical assistant or medical coach, whereby all the data of a person uh, are continually being processed. And this, of course, is optional. Many people will want it. Many others uh, will say that they don't want to have to deal with it. But we're already seeing that now for specific chronic conditions, hypertension, um, diabetes, uh, depression, uh, and many others where there's a virtual coach. But now what I'm we're talking about is holistic, where 
let's say you have a, a genomic significant risk of a particular medical condition or disease, and you're going to get coached so you never manifest it. Like, you know, you're very high risk for asthma, and in your lifetime, you never have a, we a wheeze, no less an asthma attack. As just an example, that we're going to have the ability to do that by having sensors, by having the data continuously uh, in real time assessed, fed back to an individual, given that person uh, guidance. And uh, that's going to be exciting. It's going to take a, way, a ways to get there, but that's where foundation models are going to help that integration of all the different types of data, speech, text, images, and then all the medical uh, corpus of what's published, uh, ability to, to uh, bring that in. That's where we're headed eventually. Eric, when do you realistically see us getting there? Uh, always longer than I think. <laughs> <laughs> it could be decades. I mean, I I wish we could expedite this, but, you know, if anything I've learned is just got to be patient, persevere. Just don't ever give up on the, the concept is, is really attractive. It's fulfilling prevention, true prevention, primary prevention, a fantasy, which up until now we really haven't done. But we, by having deep, data on any given individual that's continuously being ingested, processed, and fed back, we have that opportunity going forward. As you said before, you were invited to come to create the Scripps Research Translational Institute, which is one of the world's leaders right now in research. When it comes to leadership, how does leading, I'll say, researchers, and a lot of them are PhDs and other individuals besides physicians differ from leading clinicians. Yeah, that's another uh, insightful point you're making is whereas before coming here, you know, I mainly work with physicians. Uh, here, it's just the opposite. I'm mainly working with PhDs uh, and, and grad students, a, a few physicians. Uh, but what's really fascinating is that they want to be active in medicine. I mean, this is kind of a emblematic of translational medicine is getting people who are not physician trained, but their projects are, you know, the kinds of things that physicians, they're fulfilling unmet needs in medicine and in healthcare. And so that's what's fun is, um, you know, basically uh, that symbiotic work where, you know, this is so important, whether it's computer scientists or engineers or people trained in, in basic science, working with them to uh, on projects uh, to go after things that could be transformative in medicine. So I, I love doing that. It's a it's a whole new challenge uh, that I have experienced in the last fifteen years, uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's very intellectually stimulating, and we have a really interesting transdisciplinary team. We have, as you mentioned, lots of PhDs in diverse training backgrounds. But we also have nurses, we have people, you know, with regulatory expertise. Um, we have people that, you know, really are uh, epidemiologists, social scientists. So it's quite the gamut. And I think that transdisciplinary team approach is really uh, an alluring way to get at some of our big issues, questions, um, research uh, initiatives uh, of our time. You've published 1,200 articles, probably more than that by now, the last time I counted. 
and you're the editor at Medscape. Uh, let me ask you, right now, there's numerous reports of falsified research data and photos that I know you're very well aware of. Uh, you didn't do any of them, but you're well aware of that as a controversy right now. What can leaders do to stop this problem? Well, I mean, there's lever many levels of that question. Um, you know, there's the problem of the journals. Uh, you know, we have predatory journals. We have, you know, really weak journals. And we have some of the best that are susceptible to fraud. That's going to get more and more detected through AI tools. But still, you know, as peer reviewers, when we're asked to review papers, and now also social media, the chance of picking up this this type of fraud is is uh, is increasing but then at the level of you know the individual research researcher team you know i think that's where very careful uh oversight of the contents of any submission whether it's a grant or whether it's a paper is vital and and training young people about the integrity of research so we can't do enough of that. It's an area that is, uh, you know, rife with problems. Uh, we've learned about issues of reproducibility, whether that's in social science or in uh, life science. Uh, and so we must do better uh, to not just restore, but enhance the trust of the public in our work. That's what's really uh, a vital part is that whatever, you know, tell it like it is. Don't distort the findings. Uh, even if it's the opposite of what you expected, that's good. You know, just don't try to have results conform with preconceived biases. You've been involved with the NIH for most of your career. You've had many multi-million dollar grants. What advice do you have for future leaders about working with the government in general and government funded agencies specifically? Well, you know, early on in my career, I didn't work so much with the NIH. Like when I was at University of Michigan, you know, in the 80s, um, I tried, but I didn't get a successful grant uh, application, uh, at least in the beginning. Uh, and then it changed. And the reason I think uh, I became enamored by working with NIH, getting their support, there's many things about it. But, you know, it is our principal research entity in this country uh it has you know tens of billions of dollars of support to hand out and it's a merit thing it's a meritocracy i mean yeah there's issues about uh, you know older people getting the grants and and low risk of the grants not being enough in innovative and high risk whatnot but overall i mean the contributions that american uh, researchers make uh, are momentous every year. And I think the NIH deserves a tremendous amount of credit. And especially, you know, under the the long uh, leadership of Francis Collins, um, you know, I think, and, and, and of course, his predecessors, um, it's been an incredible run for the NIH. Uh, it still has work to do to deal with some of the points I just made as far as, as weaknesses. But to me, it's, it's, um, it's part of what we should be doing is support um, our main uh, path to improve our research, try to make important contributions, you know, try to um, help the NIH to make it even a better 
entity to uh you know it, it is considered a, a world leader and unlike the cdc that's taking hits during the pandemic the nih is still exceptionally highly regarded i do believe it has, should have a lot more funding and there's issues that it could do better even right now but overall you know, I consider it a great privilege and encourage, you know, all the people I get to work with to get to compete, uh, to try to get NIH funding. And that's going to be an important part on the success of their career. It isn't the only way to get supported, obviously, but it's a whole lot better than relying on industry support or foundations that you may not have uh, a sustained support path. So for me, I think the NIH is really um, the, the most important uh, uh, strategy uh, for funding of um, biomedical research. You just mentioned the pandemic. You know, we're entering our fourth year, and you've been a loud voice for scientific approach to this deadly virus with tremendous amount of information being communicated through social media and obviously in your various publications. Across that time, you've also battled a little bit with some of the FDA and maybe the CDC. Can you talk a little bit about leadership in a time of a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, we've learned a lot there. Um, and that is, I think, it's about truth-telling, taking the high road. So, you know, I did uh, originally have uh, troubles with Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner, uh, during the Trump administration because he stood up with Trump and it was declared that convalescent plasma was a historic breakthrough uh, for life-saving breakthrough. And the data were tortured to get to that conclusion. There were there there was no real data evidence for that. Uh, and so, in you know, taking him on for, you know, not telling the truth, he knew better. And then, uh, interestingly, we became very good friends out of, out of that. And, you know, I think the CDC has been even more problematic because they've given some bad messages along the way. Like, for example, you know, they've told us that five days of isolation is all you need. And that could be seen as, uh, after COVID, that could be seen as a way to spread COVID because it's not adequate. And we know all the data goes against that. No less the fact that We've got, you know, the mask issues, what they've uh, put out, and the fact that we still have two doses of vaccine is fully vaccinated when we know that many people need four or even five shots at this point to, to stay fully protected. So telling the truth, not being afraid of, you know, backlashes or, you know, the um, whether it's the politics, uh, as the case I mentioned with Han, or as, you know, the the convenience, the happy talk uh, that uh, has been provided by CDC. You know, I try to call it like it is, and I've called on the companies as well. I mean, they weren't releasing their protocols for their vaccine trials, or, you know, they're, they're now gouging the public for the imminent cost of vaccines to make it, you know, five-fold or more of what it was when they sold these same vaccines to the government. So, I mean, it, I, I try to tell it like it is, I try to get other people to do the same. And I wish our public health agencies always did that. I, I think that will help their trust. And, and certainly, um, particularly CDC has lost some of that trust along the last few years. Well, we certainly need more fearless leaders like yourself 
Let me ask you uh, about an associated area, which is that you've been a pioneer in medical devices, particularly in the world of wireless monitoring tools. Uh, how is leadership different when you start to get into the for-profit medical device and technology world? Uh, well, it's it's tricky because, you know, in medicine, there's a much more uh, global support for drugs, uh, treatments, and not devices normally, and as I mentioned, sensors, wireless devices, they're more into the diagnostics. Uh, there is a little bit of treatment and prevention. And we, we just wrote about in the Lancet recently about digitizing tremor and how you could wear a wristband to basically uh, correct uh, essential tremor. So there, but that that's, there aren't many examples of wireless devices that are, you know, true treatments, uh, non-invasive. But overall, um, you know, I think it's uh, diagnostics and devices are kind of a different, they're, they're, it's a much harder road. I mean, you know, I got into digital medicine, uh, smartphones and sensors back in first coming in at San Diego, you know, in, in 2006. And here we are 17 years later, and the progress has not been very substantial at all. It, it's a much harder road to hoe and, and, you know, we get there eventually, but uh, it takes longer. It's it's not like um, the things that get the highest priority in medicine. You've recently written about the David and Goliath battle with the live core and Apple. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that? And again, how do you see leadership trying to resolve it or your own leadership trying to resolve it? Yeah, that's pretty much a fascinating case, that I think, which is I wrote about a chapter in the book on deep medicine, which, you know, I had seen a live core come early on with an atrial fibrillation detection algorithm, which they had as a add on to Apple Watch. And they got the, the first FDA, you know, 510k approval for that. And that was great for a startup. Uh, and then not so far away in Cupertino was Apple. And a year later, they launched their own algorithm app and basically ignored the fact that AliveCore existed and that AliveCore had come to Apple to show them what they had to try to see whether or not Apple wanted to acquire the company. So, uh, you know, I wrote about this because Apple, what they did, I thought was, was unethical. Uh, and I also provided testimony in the uh, the uh, lawsuit uh, between the two companies in support of AliveCore, just because I think this is this isn't right that the intellectual property was indeed at AliveCore, and Apple, of course, has a big a lot of muscle, a lot of resources, and we all know how this can play out, and so that's still, uh, I think, being battled out uh, internationally in the U.S. Probably uh, Apple will prevail, unfortunately. But it's it's also uh, I think if you're a, a, a startup like AliveCore certainly was at the time, uh, you'd like to see your your efforts, your intellectual contributions, um, being respected and not actually ignored. And uh, I think that's overall what happened. When it comes to many of these devices, unlike some of the ones, let's say, in the operating room. Doctors seem very slow to embrace 
I'll say the most modern technology. Why do you think that is? And again, what can leaders do to help them see beyond whatever's standing in the way? Well, it depends, Robbie. Like if you're talking about robotics in the operating room, and if it, it increases reimbursement, or it becomes a marketing tool, you know, for billboards and radio and TV ads in any given city or region, it can be very quickly adopted, right? If it's if it improves reimbursement or the health system is using it as a marketing tool, you, you know, you can see things moving medicine like like we never have before. Unfortunately, that often occurs without data and evidence, as we saw um, in the era of rapid adoption of robotic surgery across most surgical domains. Um, so there's, again, it's not so simple. Um, on the other hand, there's lots of times where we should see broad adoption, but like my favorite example is the smartphone ultrasound. I believe that should be part of our physical exam. And I use it in every patient I see um, as a substitute for the stethoscope to examine the heart. Now, it doesn't provide any reimbursement, but neither does listening with a stethoscope. On the other hand, it's, to me, exponentially more informative compared to lub-dub. You know, I'm, I'm seeing everything and I'm sharing it with the patient uh, in real time. So uh, that why isn't that uh, universally adopted? Well, interestingly, uh, there's no reimbursement. And worse than that, health systems don't want their doctors to use it because they want to get reimbursement for traditional echocardiography, which is um, important. So we have all these perverse incentives. So that is a, a key reason why certain things don't get incorporated in medical practice that should. That is, if we really wanted our best care for patients, in this case, we're using screening smartphone ultrasound to preempt the need for lots of studies that otherwise wouldn't need to be done and getting rapid assessment, rapid, accurate diagnoses. If we really wanted that, the best for patients, we would just do it, but, but that doesn't happen. So let me ask you, you and I both agree, I believe, that transformation of the American healthcare system is going to be needed and has to happen soon. Who's going to lead that process? And what will, again, be different in that transition that exists today? I wish I had the answer to that question, but I don't. I don't know who's going to lead it or if it's really going to change as it should. Um, in order for it to change, we've got to get the, the patient-physician relationship rebooted to the way it used to be in the 70s and before when it was a really intimate, tight-knit relationship where you knew your physician had your back and that the physician felt that they were really uh, present when in seeing, caring for patients and that their raison d'etre for being in this profession was fulfilled on a daily basis rather than serving as data clerks and being rushed to see from one patient to the next, you know, in a matter of single digit minutes and then having potentially hours after seeing patients to do their data clerk work. I mean, this, I don't know how it's going to change. It, it, it isn't going to change just by accident, by default, by passivity. And I don't see anything happening 
at the moment in the medical landscape that's going to fix it. Uh, I do see that AI could be a rescue path, but um, it also could make things worse, uh, ironically. So I wish I had the answer, but I, I don't. But by the way, I just say one thing. I'm actually a very optimistic person. So I still am hoping that there will be uh, a light. I, I just don't see it yet. Yeah, I think I think clinicians are going to have to step forward. And as you pointed out, they weren't trained to do that. They were trained to keep their head down and take care of patients one at a time. Uh, I think if they actually can step forward, that patients and their bond with the patients you talked about will be very powerful. It will not be an easy battle, as you've noted, when you're trying to battle huge giants out there. But I still, I still believe and I have some hope that it can be led by clinicians, but it won't happen, as you say, through passivity. Someone's going to have to go out there and have some of the fearlessness that you've brought to the leadership roles that you've had. Yeah, I mean, I, I did try to recruit a young team uh, to to do this, but it's not easy because, you know, how do you get hundreds of thousands of physicians to be part of, of an organization, you know, where the where it's five dollars a year, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> medicine forward. Right. Um, and it's struggling. Um, and I thought that might have might do it. And I'll be, I'm, not, I'm an old dog. I'm not the right person to, you know, I can help cheer it on and support it. But we need a younger generation and diverse younger generation, you know, representing not just the different specialties, but, you know, race and ethnicity and, you know, just backgrounds to 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 come up with a way that we can come together. We have tremendous gravitas as physicians if we did work together. The question is, how do you get traction, momentum, and willingness to all work to, do, to, to meet this goal? Let me ask you two last questions. First, what is the most important leadership lesson you've learned across your illustrative career? But second, what do you see as your biggest leadership mistake? Well, I mean, I think the biggest, most uh, I, I'd say gratifying part is to see how you could inspire uh, a young person to pursue their career and to see so many that I've been fortunate, really lucky and privileged to work with, to see them blossom and to see how they're going to um, provide leadership for others. So to me, that's extraordinary. And, you know, there's two things you can do that, you know, I've tried to aspire. One is that, and the other is to come up with ideas for research initiatives that can be transformative and they that can help a large number of patients that amplify our reach. So those are the two things that, you know, I think um, I, I, that we can all do um, to uh, extend our efforts, our legacy, if you will, and I think that I've already touched on, you know, that we have to be patient. I'm not let more so now than perhaps when I was younger, but uh, it just takes much longer than it should probably to get stuff done. Um, but, and we, we have to always be thinking about, you know, where are the holes? Where are the unmet needs? What are the, what are the sacred cows that we need to challenge? Uh, because there's so many in medicine, you know, the, the myths that need to be debunked you know, always thinking about these things, not just accepting everything as, as it is or as it looks to be, but questioning that. 
And the truth to power that you've touched on, I, I think is really vital. And we don't have enough of that. People tend to be kind of sheepish and don't want to, you know, get in the thick of things. And, you know, I, I, I've done that a number of times throughout my career, notably the one that was near a career ending dealing with Vioxx and, and Merck uh, and even my own institution at the time. But, um, you know, overall, it's worth uh, taking on these these initiatives, these these efforts. You are an inspiration, Eric. Your fearlessness, your willingness to take on almost any challenge. I mean, you've done probably five times more in your career than most people can imagine accomplishing across years of practicing medicine and leading medicine. So I think if people listening to you decide to follow in your footsteps, you've already blazed the trail. I think the path for them will be easier. So let me thank you for offering those thoughts and for leading the way. Oh, you're extremely kind. I enjoyed our conversation. I always do when I get a chance to talk with you. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.